the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 255, and we are recording on October 27th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jen Northington, and we're coming to you from Book Riot. How's the closet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I moved recently, so I had to set up a new recording closet. It has Christmas lights now for lighting, which uh, I'm not sad about, especially on this morning of existential exhaustion. It is... It's, I'm not going to lie, y'all. I'm real tired right now, but it's okay. Same. We're going to talk about books and uh, here, yeah, we're going to do the thing. Yeah. It's the Tuesday before the election for those of you who are like, why are they so Because that's why. I don't feel like I need more explanation. Nope. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so we are going to gird our loins and onward we, onward we go. Okay. So how the show works. As I said, this is a show for personalized reading recommendations. So you write into us with your reading recommendation request. You can send it to us via email at getbookedatbookriot.com, or you can use the form in the show notes on the site. If your question is time sensitive, please put it in the subject line of the email. If you're using the form, just put it in big letters in the first line so that we see it. We ask for your email address because we might email you back our response if we've already talked about your question on the show, which is possible. Seven questions per show, 255 shows. It's entirely possible. Although y'all have very specific requests most (laughs) weeks. So, you know, we don't get tons of repeats, but it does happen. Okay, uh, let's see. We've got a little bit of feedback from Wendy who says, I have some recs for Christine for her trip to the woods during the election. Alone by E.J. Noyce is an atmospheric, women-loving women book about a woman who has spent four years in isolation in the woods to win half a million dollars. That's a long time. That's a long time. Mine by Georgia Beers is a lovely women-loving women romance partially set in the fall. Halloween plays a role. And lastly, The Secret of Sleepy Hollow by Andy Marquette is a Halloween women-loving women romance starring a fictional female descendant of Ichabod Crane. Um, And then Diane says, have a book to add for episode 253 about the proofreader job. Book is The Deluxe Transitive Vampire, the ultimate handbook of grammar for the innocent, the eager, and the doomed, revised edition by Karen Gordon, first published in 1984. It's great. Well, that sounds great. Deluxe Transitive Vampire. I know. I need to know what that means. Yeah. What's a transitive vampire? I have questions. I have questions. Okay. So that is our feedback. Jen's going to read our first question. We will hear from our first sponsor and away we will go. All right. Our first question is from Molly, who says, I teach grade nine English, and every day I read out loud to my class from a YA novel. We do a little work with the novel, but I'm trying to get them to associate reading with enjoyment for the most part, since they don't generally read on their own. Right now, we're reading Scythe by Neil Shusterman, and they are loving it so far. I think they like it because it has a little bit of a darker premise, and of course, it has some good twists and turns. Do you have any YA recommendations for novels that are similar to Scythe, but would be good to read out loud to a wide range of reading abilities? I'm looking for something that is action-packed and also a little thought-provoking. Dystopias are popular with them, but it's not a deal-breaker if you don't recommend any. It's good to expand their horizons once in a while. A little romance is okay, but nothing too over the top. All right, let's take our sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. 
The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Rife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal, join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. Okay, Amanda, ninth grade read-alouds. Yes, um, I picked Want by Cindy Pond, which is a dystopia that I think that's quite fast-paced that I think would be great for a read-aloud for kids that age. Um, it is about a kid named Jason who lives in a kind of near-future society in which, well, it feels very... <laughs> It feels a little on the nose, um, in which like many viruses and various and sundry pandemics are and lots of climate change uh, is happening. And so the divide between the rich and the poor is increasing, but the effects are increasing specifically in those areas in ways that are really affecting people's lives and livelihoods. Um, so the main character is Jason's mother has just died of one of the viruses that are going around. The wealthy members of society can afford to wear these, um, they're functionally like very fashionable hazmat suits that cost a bajillion dollars, protect you from pathogens, and also screen out the smog and smoke from fires and all the effects of climate change that are happening. So the, the wealthy are able to protect themselves in this way and the poor are not. And so his mother has died and he joins up with a, a group of his friends to infiltrate Gin Corporation, which is the corporation that manufactures these suits. And he thinks because of the circumstances of his mother's death and because of other uh, evidence that he has, Jin, uh, Jason thinks that Gin Corporation is also manufacturing some of the pollution and maybe even some of the germs that are going around in the city. So he so him and his friends execute a series of heists to generate a bunch of money so that he can pretend to be a wealthy dude who, like, infiltrates this corporation and its society, like, high society people. So he does that. He pretends to be rich. He, like, rents this really fancy apartment and befriends the daughter of Jin Corp's CEO. Uh, her name is Dayu. Uh, the wrinkle there is that she is, like, nice. <laughs> and he starts to fall for her. So there's a little bit of romance. It's not over the top at all. Um, but there is a heist. Uh, a couple of heists. But one big heist where they break into Jin Corp to, like, steal the proof that they need to bring it down. Um, there's a lot of, like, kind of Robin Hood-ish good versus evil. Of course, the discussions of the uh, viruses and the pandemics in the book will feel very, you know, kind of on the nose and relevant to kids right now, and I think really keep their attention. So that's Want by Cindy Pond. I picked War Cross by Marie Lu, which, uh, oh, includes a trigger warning for harm to children. 
And I picked this because I feel like it would be a great read aloud for ninth graders, not least because the whole story is organized around a massively multiplayer virtual game, which like probably a lot of them are super interested in and familiar with. It takes place in like a near future where there's this game called Warcross and like everybody around the world is obsessed with it. And there are, you know, international championships of the esports variety. And the main character, Emika Chen, is a bounty hunter. She's a teenage hacker who looks for people who have illegally bet on this game and tracks them down for the authorities uh, and, like, collects money that way. But, you know, things aren't going great. Like, she's kind of just barely scraping by. And then the international games are about to kick off. And she has figured out, like, what she thinks is a loophole in the programming where she could just, like, duck in and steal this valuable item and hopefully, you know, not get caught, sell it, and all of her money problems would be solved. And like, you know, like nobody will be the wiser, except that's obviously not what happens. She does this thing. Everybody sees it. But instead of like getting sent to jail for a billion years, she gets offered a job by the founder of the company because like clearly she's a very talented hacker and somebody has been trying to corrupt Warcross and he is like come and figure out like who's messing with my game and I will pay you lots of money and she's like great (laughs) awesome of course nothing is as simple as it seems there are so many great characters it's a really inclusive cast and there's so much action um there is some like pining and flirting, but I don't remember there being much more than that, especially in book one. There's great twists, and it definitely has some dark moments. So yeah, I feel like this would be a real solid one for that age group. Again, that's Warcross by Marie Lu. All right, our next question is from Jamie, who says, I love reading, but as the holidays approach, I find myself with less and less time, so I'm always getting my library books returned to the library half-finished. Do you have any recommendations for novellas for a quick and satisfying read? I like sci-fi fantasy, horror, thrillers, mystery, and historical. No romance, please. Bonus if it's a woman writer. Okay, I picked Two Old Women, an Alaskan legend of betrayal, courage, and survival by Velma Wallace, which is uh, historical, I would say. And it is a novella. It's about 140 pages long. And it's based on an Athabascan Indian legend from the Yukon River Valley in Alaska. Um, And it's about two old women, obviously. (laughs) Hence the title. Um, It's about two old women who uh, live in a tribe that has decided to abandon them to the elements right before the winter is coming. Oh, wait, no. Winter has already happened and they're running out of food. um, And the tribe has decided that they need to move on. And so the chief has made this really difficult decision of leaving these two old women to fend for themselves essentially sentencing them to die because the tribe can no longer support them and they don't contribute, quote unquote, in any way because they are too old to do so. So the the tribe leaves them there and moves off. And then we follow these old ladies as they like just refuse to die and uh, resurrect all of their skills from their youth, um, get back into physical shape, go hunting, go trapping, you know, make themselves some shelter, depend on each other in this really difficult time. It has a very satisfying ending, especially if you enjoy like a nice dose of pettiness, which I absolutely love. A little <laughs> bit of petty, like so petty, so good, very satisfying. And you'll read it in a sitting because you're like, for these women, like you are here to see them triumph and also pettiness. That, that's what you're here for. It's very enjoyable. So that's Two Old Women by Velma Wallace. I feel like that's just so welcome <laughs> at all times, but definitely Petty. now times. <laughs> 
Casa de Petty. Uh, yes. <laughs> okay. I picked The Tea Master and the Detective by Aliette de Bedard. This book comes with trigger warnings for PTSD and harm to women and children. This is part of her Universe of Shuya series, which is like, what if basically pre-colonialism, the Vietnamese went to outer space? It's awesome. Uh, And it takes place in this world where, you know, space travel is super normal. And the spaceships are beings in their own right. They're called mind ships. And they are, like, birthed from humans in this way that's, like, complicated. I don't remember the details. So each mind ship has, like, is a person. And in this short story, which is sort of like an homage to Sherlock Holmes, and it is a murder mystery as well as a sci-fi story, the ship, which is called The Shadow's Child, uh, has been discharged from military service. Like, the ship underwent this extremely traumatic event and is now just, like, kind of, like, chilling, making mind-altering tea, like you do, uh, for people who travel through space because, you know, it's hard for humans to go through space without some kind of drug aid. But everybody needs, like, a slightly different brew, and the Shadow's Child is really good at, at making a brew that fits a person's needs specifically. And then this client walks in named Long Chow, who is wants to, like, go into space and retrieve a corpse for scientific study, also like you do. And the Shadow's Child is, like, not super excited to take this job, but there are reasons why. And then the corpse turns out to have been murdered and, you know, now they have to find out what happened. And it's like a very, like, Long Chow is so prickly and, like, kind of a jerk in that classic Sherlock Holmesy way. And the combination of the two in this sort of setting is just fantastic. It's so good. It's so good. I love this whole series. They're all novellas. They're all really interesting. They all sort of build the world together, but the characters don't usually repeat. So you don't really have to have read them in any specific order. It's just like getting to play in this world. So I think this is a perfectly fine entry point, and I hope that you enjoy it so much that you read all of the other ones. Again, that's The Tea Master and the Detective by Aliette de Bedard. Our next question is from Jessica, who says, I'm looking for a book where you cheer for the villain. I'm not looking for a book about Hitler or Trump. I'm looking for something kind of silly or fun. When you were watching The Roadrunner and Coyote, sometimes you wanted the Coyote's plan to work. Or the (laughs) mad scientist in any cartoon. Sometimes you just want him to have a good day and take over the world. I'm like envisioning Pinky in the brain. Like That's what I'm thinking about. I'll I'll go back to reading the question now. Jessica says, please no graphic novels or comic books. I want a good novel to get lost in. And uh, Jessica attached her Goodreads link. Okay, so I'm just going to keep talking. I picked Hench by Natalie Walshots, which does come with a trigger warning for graphic violence. But, like, it's like, you know, if you've watched, like, superhero movies, like, it's that kind of, like, it's a little body horror in moments, but I got through it just fine. And it is so darkly funny and it does this thing really well because the main character Anna is like a spreadsheet whiz and she lives in this world where there are superheroes and supervillains and she ends up working generally speaking she's like for a temp she works for a temp agency for criminals so she gets like sent out on these jobs by this temp agency for various supervillains to like make spreadsheets for their dastardly plans right like what a job And she goes out on this job that is supposed to be just like any other job, except she gets caught in the crossfire of this really 
big battle between superheroes and supervillains, and she gets, like, traumatically injured by a hero, a quote-unquote hero. And so during her, like, long recovery process, she is also extremely depressed, and she's really struggling with what happened to her. And so she starts to log all of the collateral damage that these quote-unquote heroes do to the people around them. And if, like, you, like me, have ever watched an Avengers movie and been like, like, this is, this is, you know, the book. And she ends up, like, getting the notice of another supervillain and, you know, her, her life kind of builds from there. And there's this really complicated female friendship at the heart of this book that, like, oh, gives me all the feelings. Like, it's not necessarily a happy story in so many ways, but it is so satisfying in that it probes all of these questions that, like, you know, so comics might sometimes touch on, but they don't necessarily go as far as this book goes. And it is it is very darkly funny. Now, I keep saying dark because it is dark. But, you know, just, just a heads up. It's not like as silly as, you know, Roadrunner and a Coyote. But you definitely are rooting for the villains. And again, that's Hench by Natalie Zeno Walshutz. Okay, I picked Renegades by Marissa Mayer, which is a YA novel about a girl named Nova who lives in a, mm, I guess it's near future, uh, version of America where society is kind of crumbled, just a little bit of crumbling, you know, <laughs> mild crumblage, mild crumblage, <laughs> and superheroes exist. And so out of the ruins of America's demise uh, has come kind of a new government run mostly by superheroes. And they were, they emerged during the collapse, like there was all this, you know, crime and poverty and they emerged as like this peace and order law and justice kind of entity these superheroes are going to save america from itself blah 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 whatever and so now that's what they're doing they are law and order government and nova is a member of the oh i think they're called the Rending. no what do they call the i don't remember the arch something anyway she's a villain like she is very anti these superheroes but she has her own superpowers and so her and her friends are the people, her friends and, and like found family, the people who have raised her, all have superpowers also, and they are considered and covered by the media to be like arch villains, the nemeses of these other superheroes who have, you know, saved America from itself. And she has joined these villains because her parents died when she was a child and the super, these superheroes were not there to save them. And so she feels like she's been abandoned by these heroes and wants to like bring down their whole fake righteous thing. Um, and so she um, creates this like plot to pretend to be a recruit for the superheroes and goes to join their organization. And so she pretends to do that. She gets through the trials and the testing phase and ends up undercover in the Renegades organization. It gets very complicated because as is always the situation when you get close to your enemy, you usually find out that they're like just people who might be wrong about some stuff. But then you have to grapple with like, oh, but I want to destroy these people, but they're just people who were wrong about some stuff. And so there's a lot of internal like, you know, uh, ethical dilemma stuff going on in Nova's brain. And she has to figure out what she wants to do with it and figure out whether or not everything she's been taught about both the superheroes and her own found family is true or just a line that she's been fed and who has fed it to her. So that's Renegades by Marissa Mayer. All right. Our next question is from Monica, who says, My 12-year-old son has recently become very interested in World War II. I'm hoping for middle grade or slightly above books that discuss the history and also the history of those who lived through it. He's more interested in nonfiction, but he would also likely appreciate fiction that still explains the history. Okay, Jen, what you got? All right. I picked When My Name Was Kyoko by Linda Sue Park, who is like an amazing award-winning writer of uh, children's and young adult books. And this I picked because 
I feel like when I was that age, everything I learned was about Europe in World War II. And, like, we would talk about Pearl Harbor and the Japanese, but, like, otherwise, like, I just really didn't learn anything that wasn't Europe in World War II. And so I went looking for books that showed other aspects of the war, and I picked this one because it talks about what life in Korea was like under Japanese occupation. So the main characters, Sun Hee and her older brother, Tai Yul, are uh, living under Japanese occupation in Korea. All the students have to read and write in Japanese. You can't fly the flag. Um, and everybody is forced to take Japanese names. And, you know, they are sort of have to help with the war preparations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're like on the side of Japan. It just means that they are being forced by this governing occupying force to do these things. And it is about, you know, what life was like in those circumstances for these two young people. And I feel like, you know, it is it is fiction, um, but it is based on Linda Sue Park's own family history. And it will certainly lead maybe to questions that can then get looked up um, or other books that uh, deal with this. And it just feels like to me it's worth, you know, thinking about that. Obviously, I don't know what your son has read, but I'm betting that it's a lot of Europe. So again, this is When My Name Was Kyoko by Linda Sue Park. All right. I picked Paper Wishes by uh, Lois Sepabon, which is middle grade fiction. It's historical fiction about a 10-year-old girl named Manami who is was born in the U.S. Her parents are Japanese, and she is taken from her home after the death of her grandmother to live in one of the internment camps. And there's a, not, it's not a subplot, it's an important plot, where this girl, on the, the day that her grandmother dies, she finds a little white dog on the beach and decides to take it home. And when the soldiers come to take her family out of their home and take them to the internment camp, they won't let her bring the dog. And so she becomes so, like, shattered by everything that's happening. She's losing her home. She's just lost her grandmother. Now she's losing her dog that she stops speaking. And so then she has to go and live in this camp. And her family is, of course, like, supportive and there. And they understand what's happening. They understand she's having a difficult time. But they're very old-fashioned and very traditional. Don't talk about feelings. Even in this, you know, hyper-traumatic moment for this kid they are like not it doesn't even really occur to them to ask after her feelings plus she's not talking so what almost would be the point and so she's the book is very much her internal monologue and she spends a lot of time clinging to this like hope that her dog will find his way to the camp and then that that somehow will make everything okay Um, and she has to kind of let go of her own personal guilt about the dog in order to start really processing her feelings and the reason why I picked this book is because it seems like such a small thing almost that like the dog would be the thing that the kid would fixate on when her entire world has been taken apart and she's being forced to live in this terrible these terrible circumstances and she's lost her home and her relatives but i think that's very relatable to a kid and for Mm. a 12 year old who's just getting interested in world war ii i think it it can be not hard i mean kids can understand battles right like i did certainly when i was a world war ii nerd at that age (laughs) but bringing it home really to that like but she can't even have her dog you know and like these little emotional traumas, I think, make the ways in which war can be so terrible more relatable for a kid to understand. And you you don't have to talk about war in these big, you know, casualties and lives lost and, and big uh, world leader kind of ways in order to get kids to really start to understand what war is like. I think even something as what to an adult would seem quote unquote small as losing a dog can really, I think, bring it home. So that's Paper Wishes by Louis Sepapan. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. So many yeah. feelings. Right. <laughs> And I don't have, there's just no room in my brain for feeling now. Here are all these feelings. All right, let's, let's talk about a sponsor. <laughs> okay, our next question is from Becky, who says, I read a pretty eclectic selection, and even in non-pandemic years, I go through a couple of books a week. Right now, I'm looking for total escapism, not anything even close to reality. I've been diving in deeper to different categories that I like, but what I'm really looking for right now are sci-fi fantasy heist stories. I loved the Rogues of the Republic series by Patrick Weeks, but I'm having trouble finding anything comparable. Okay, I picked The Gilded Wolves by Roshni Chokshi, which trigger warnings for depiction of violent anti-Semitism, racism, and child abuse. But like this, so I say that and, you know, it it is historically inspired. It takes place in late 19th century France, but it is extremely escapist and satisfying and magical. And it does with the fantasy heist genre something that I just love to see, which is that it like takes all of the familiar tropes and then it kind of like turns them upside down in that all of the characters in this book are people who are marginalized in some way. We have like a Jewish mathematician. We have a couple biracial characters who are being, you know, excluded from various communities. There is an Indian character who is, you know, exoticized by the French. Like there's all kinds of interesting 
intersections in this story. And they are like the ragtag found family team that you love to root for. One of them is a treasure hunter and hotelier, obviously. He's like 18 mm. and owns a hotel. Whatever, doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Sure, um, yep. <laughs> it's like, like you do, totally normal. And YA. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> There's this order of Babel that are these very uh, rich and wealthy and powerful houses that have magic. They have all of these, quote unquote, forged objects. They have the power to do lots of things with them. And he was raised in the order, but then was denied his inheritance um, when he came of age and because he is biracial and is like determined to like get it back somehow. And he they're like after this treasure. And then they get caught by the person they're stealing from. And then that person hires them to do another job. And it's like this whole tangled web of like, who's stealing from who? And like, what's going to happen next? And there's absolutely like all of these classic heist moments. Like there's a floor that they have to carefully step on. There's like a giant flaming like boulder coming down at them at one point. There's all these kinds of like trickery and disguises. And it's just really... Like, I read this over the weekend, and I just lost hours in a blink to following these characters and their adventures. I will say that it ends on a cliffhanger. It's actually the first book in a series, but lucky us, the second book is out. Uh, The third book is out next year, and you're going to want to pick up the second one, like, pretty much immediately after you finish this one. So I just I just loved spending time with these characters and enjoying this like very different kind of view of Belle Epoque France. Uh, so again, that's The Gilded Wolves by Roshni Chakshi. All right. I picked Foundry Side by Robert Jackson Bennett, which is the first book in the Founders trilogy. And it comes with a trigger warning for slavery. This is heisty. I apparently have a weakness for a heist fantasy books set in like weird alternate Italian settings. Why is there more than one of those? It's very specific. Right. There's more than one series that is a heist fantasy book set in weird Italian settings. Mostly Venice. But here we are. I don't know. I don't know why it is that way, but I don't know. So the main character's name is Sansia. She's a thief who lives in Tavane, which is the name of her town that's run by a bunch of merchant houses, four merchant houses that control all of the wealth and all of the magic in this universe. And in this universe, the magic is based on writing symbols based on an ancient alphabet on inanimate objects that kind of gives them sentience. So you can, for example, if you have really weak wood that you want to build a house out of, you can, they call it scriving, you can scrivet, write these symbols on it to make the wood convinced that it's actually really strong steel. And then your house will stand forever, even though you have terrible materials. And so Sansia is a thief in this world, and her ability is to tell what objects are being have been scrived to do what, which is a really strange ability that nobody should have. And when the book opens, she's using her powers to pull off a heist that involves breaking into the docks in town and stealing something for her client. Um, She does that classic, overly smart, curious thief mistake and opens the box when she steals it after setting half the town on fire um, and then realizes that the thing that she has stolen cannot be given up. Like she can't give it to the people who have hired her because then like her world will fall apart in a lot of different ways. Plus it talks to her like it's an it's a sentient it's a sentient key that talks to her. And so she kind of becomes its friend, which is super weird. Um, And so she goes on this kind of like quest to find out where this key came from. And why the people who hired her want it so badly at the same time she's being chased by like 14 different people, including her clients, a couple people from the underground who like also want the thing, the police, uh, who one of the cops turns out to be a big main character. 
ally to her. And she has to pull off a series of increasingly more difficult heists in order to save herself, her friends, and to get to the bottom of this mystery. And it, it, there are more books in the series. So there's just heist on heist on heist in this weird pseudo Italy, which I, how? One day I'll figure out why I like that so much. But here we are. So that's Foundry Side by Robert Jackson Bennett. Okay, our next question is from Renee, who says, I visited Rome and Sicily where my mom was born last year and fell in love with the deep history of Italy. Italy show. <laughs> Since we can't go there right now due to COVID, I've been reading a lot about the history of Italy, specifically Rome and Sicily, but all I've been able to find are nonfiction books, which are fine, but historical fiction is my jam. Do you have any recommendations for historical fiction that take place in Italy? I read a lot about World War II, so preferably before 1900. Okay, I'm going to keep going because my dog is not making noise at this exact moment. I picked The Vatican Princess, a novel of Lucrezia Borgia by C.W. Gortner. And this is, look, if you... <laughs> The, the Borgias were like bananas. They were just <laughs> murderers, rapists, thieves, like really big political powers in Italy, in Renaissance Italy, specifically in the 15th century. But like mob boss, I think is the most. Okay, so Machiavelli's book, The Prince, is based on the Borgias. So all of that just like stone cold throat slitting is all is all Borgia. And Lucretia is such a fascinating person because her father was Pope Alexander. He was a super corrupt, terrible person, had tons of out of uh, wedlock, illegitimate children, including her, uh, which I guess you would have to because popes aren't supposed to. Right. So anyway, um, including her. And she has probably become most famous in like kind of pop culture for poisoning men who she didn't like, <laughs> which may or may not be true. Probably a little bit true. Maybe not entirely. Maybe not all of them, but you know, whatever. And so this is a book told from her perspective. When she was 12, her father became the Pope. And so she became suddenly very valuable on the marriage market, even though she's not technically a princess. She was kind of a princess. And so she became super, super valuable. She was married off when she was 13. It was a disastrous marriage. It eventually becomes annulled. She ends up spending time at a monastery waiting for all of that to like settle. The book takes a bunch of historical liberties with like why she was necessarily at that monastery hiding from everybody waiting for the annulment. And then it also covers her relationship with her two brothers who were, you know, Porsches, murderers, rapists, terrible, horrible people. And it, it's really looking at exactly how this young kid, right, she was 13 when all of this starts happening to her. And then the book follows her till I think she's about 20. How she was used as a pawn in all of these political machinations of mostly the men in her family. And a lot of the times she participated, right? Like she wasn't dumb and she wasn't like an angel, but she was given no choices, as is often the case for aristocratic women during this time period who are being married off or who are being used as a commodity in their family's greater political and financial aims. So that definitely is what happened to her. And since it's you know, the Pope. A lot of it takes place in Rome. And does she actually poison a bunch of people? I don't know. You got to read it and find out. Or <laughs> you could read Wikipedia about her, but you don't actually, we don't actually know. So that is The Vatican Princess by C.W. Gordner. Nice. I always get the Borgias and the Medicis confused and I, like, I don't know why. But anyway, that's, that's a side note. So I went looking for a little help with this one and Jess Pride recommended Juliet by Anne Fortier. And I... I think you're going to like it, but here's here's my caveat. It is a dual narrative. It takes place both in like contemporary-ish Italy and historical Italy, like 1300s Italy. And it's all wrapped up around the play Romeo and Juliet. 
the main character, uh, Julie Jacobs, is 25, and she lives in Virginia, and she is obsessed with Shakespeare, specifically Romeo and Juliet. She's, like, teaching at a summer camp for kids, a drama camp for kids, when the book opens. And she finds out that her Aunt Rose, who's this, like, very wealthy, sort of eccentric woman who took her and her twin sister in when they were little and their parents died, her Aunt Rose has just died. And so she has to go back for the funeral and the reading of the will. And she was very close to her aunt in a way that her sister was not. Um, so she expects to, like, get some money, half the house, like, whatever. She's going to be fine. Except that's not what happens. Her aunt, like, bizarrely leaves everything to her, like, you know, terrible twin sister who just cares about, like, money and real estate and seems kind of horrible um, at the beginning of the book. I'm not done reading it. So, like, TBD, whether or not that sister gets a redemption mm. moment. But nothing gets left to Julie except for this letter and a key to a safety deposit box in Siena. I think you can probably imagine what direction this is going. So she has to go to Siena. She finds out that she's actually like part of this esteemed lineage and there's this long running family feud. And perhaps the story of Romeo and Juliet is actually based on her own family history and everything sort of spirals out from there. You get her adventures in Siena and you get the like flashbacks to the, you know, sort of obviously fictional, but the theoretical like real story of Romeo and Juliet. And there's lots of like running through catacombs and, you know, trying to figure out who you can trust and who you can't trust. And it's it's I love I love a dual historical fiction novel because it feels like you get to see somebody inhabiting both spaces and if you ever get to go there like I feel like there it's rooted in contemporary experience as well as historical which is fun so again that's Juliet by Anne Fortier all right and our last question is from an exhausted American yes Uh. indeed Who says, so as I'm sitting here watching the first presidential debate, there's a part of me that just wants to forget about American politics for a while and learn about someone else's. (laughs) I'm so hyper-focused on the political topography here in America, but I have no idea how other countries' governments work. I'm curious if you have any recommendations for books that could help me understand the politics and government of other countries, particularly ones that are known for being very stable. Some countries I would be interested in learning about off the top of my head are Switzerland, Denmark, and New Zealand, but open to learning about any country. Amanda, what do you got? Um, So this is a hard question to answer without recommending just like the Penguin History of New Zealand, which you, you know, or whatever, which you could certainly read. I've read the Penguin History of America, which is, you know, 2000 pages long and took me almost a year. Probably the same thing for New Zealand. I don't necessarily think that's the thing an exhausted brain really wants, <laughs> which is, you know, who you are, an exhausted American. So I picked How to Be Danish, A Journey to the Cultural Heart of Denmark, which is by Patrick Kingsley. And, you know, this covers lots of Danish cultural items and traces a lot of really popular general pop culture things like Metallica, Shakespeare, you know, back to the culture of the Danes. But it also covers a lot about their economy and their government, mostly through the lens of like how the Danish people expect their government to treat them and their expectations for things like taxation the government providing, you know, XYZ services to their people. So he, he, you know, oh, and also there's um, a good bit of conversation in there about how the Danes are very politically informed. And don't do that thing that Americans do of like, you know, it's not polite to talk about money, politics or religion. The Danes talk about all of those things as, and like know what they're talking about as opposed, you know, as opposed to a lot of us uh, here in this country. He talks about the the expectation for paying taxes at a certain percentage. I think it's 50 four or 56. 
don't remember which um, percentage of income is taxed. But the Danes also don't have to pay for transportation for the most part or for their or their heating bills. They don't have to pay for college. They don't have to pay for health care because, you know, the, the government provides all of those services. And so over half of the income that they keep can then go to things like making their homes feel very cozy. You know, that like Danish Higa thing that mm. was talked about a lot last year when we all had space in our brains to think about candles. Right. Um, and <laughs> they can they can afford to do all of those things because all of these big ticket items are taxed out of their uh, their income. And the Danes really expect and value that. And the ways that they have done things like eliminated car culture is through taxation, because taxation on a new car makes the price of a new car really out of the realm of possibility for most people. So they just ride bikes and like have a cleaner, chiller city life as a result. Um, so it's things like that. Like Danish culture is set up on the expectation that taxation will solve a lot of their problems. And it has. Which is, of course, not something that America would generally be like crazy to hear or like super receptive to off the jump. But that kind of foundational idea that the that Danish government has the expectation of providing services for its people and the Danish people have the expectation of paying for them, I think is really informative when it comes to wanting to understand how another country that is very stable functions. So that's How to Be Danish by Patrick Kingsley. Yeah, I had a hard time finding a book for this question, too. And then I remembered Incarceration Nations by Baz Dreisinger, which I read, gosh, a while back. And it blew my mind because instead of focusing on one country, this is like a comparative survey of how different countries approach justice and crime. And it was so helpful for me in like breaking out of this, like, well, this is just the way like this is the way court works. This is the way jail works like that. There's only one way and it's this way, which is the only way that I've ever known because I've lived in America my whole life. It's like, no, 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 no. There's other ways to do this. Like mm. they can call it the same thing, but it looks very different. And what does that mean for the people involved? What does it mean for crime rates? What does it mean for, you know, reintegration into society? Like there's all these interesting questions. And especially since we are locked in this like really intense conversation about criminal justice reform and defunding the police and restorative justice and social justice. Like what did these things look like? I found Baz Reisinger's book extremely helpful in breaking out of like my own locked in mindset because that's just my only experience. And so Dreisinger, uh, she went around the world. She goes to South Africa. She goes to Thailand. She goes to, you know, Australia, to Singapore, to Norway. Like she goes to all she goes to South America. Like she goes to all of these places that have extremely different approaches to the question of what do you do with someone who has committed a crime? How do you treat them? And what happens? You know, what when are they considered to have been like appropriately punished? And what does it mean mm. to punish somebody for a crime? Like these are all really intense and thorny questions. And this book obviously like cannot cover everything, but it gives a really, I think, accessible, readable and intelligent look at what the possibilities are that are currently out there and how we could all learn from one another and make more equitable systems that do allow for reintegration and that appropriately, like, deliver consequences to criminal behavior. Like, it's really, it was just so eye-opening and mind-opening and helpful to me. So I think you might feel similarly. 
Again, like not a light topic, but like Uh government is never a light topic. Like that's not Uh a thing. That's just not a thing. So Mm. uh, again, that's Incarceration Nations. Subtitle is A Journey to Justice in Prisons Around the World by Baz Dreisinger. And that is our show. Wow. (laughs) It was a a heavy lift this week. It really was. Thank you so much to our audio editor, Jen Zink. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find us on social media. I'm on Instagram at I'm Amanda Nelson. I'm also primarily on Instagram at I am Jen IRL. That's I-A-M-J-E-N-N-I-R-L. And we will be back next week. And the election will be over by then. That's bonkers. (laughs) Talk to you all next week. (laughs) 